This episode is sponsored by NewCalm, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Nucalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show British veteran, former contractor, and the author of When War Follows You Home, Ben Close. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from Ben's turbulent childhood, his journey into the military, some of the traumatic events he witnessed in uniform, his transition story, his mental health struggles, catharsis through writing, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Ben Close. Enjoy. Well, Ben, I want to start by saying thank you to Paul Maleri for connecting us, and I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. I'd like to thank Paul as well, and, and yourself, James. Thank you very much. So where on planet Earth are we finding you, my afternoon, your evening? We're, I'm, in Ketch, uh, I'm, in, I'm in England, UK, uh, so it's what's time now? 20 past six. I, you know what? I've just done the same thing as you. I've just done the same thing as you from earlier. This is twenty past seven, so I haven't, I haven't, I haven't moved more. I haven't changed the time on my watch because back on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, every twice a year, there's a week where the UK and the US is off by an hour, 
And it doesn't, yeah. it, without fail, even though I'm totally aware of it and I try and get it right in my calendar every single time we, I have an issue. And this is what happened with us, which is good. I was an hour early, not an hour late this time. Well, but, if, uh, I had this watch on, if I had this watch on, I would have been ready. But I don't want to. I haven't even changed this one. But yeah, sound. All right. Well, I want to start at the very beginning of your story. I know that you have a very powerful you know, story that you've written a book about. Um, and yeah, what's when, interesting when is that- your home, yeah. There you go. When more follows you home. Um, but your, you know, your early life factors in a lot and you've been very kind of public about that, which is something I think a lot of us in uniform don't really discuss as much. You know, we think, oh, I have these these mental scars because of you know Afghanistan or the Grenfell fire or, you know, whatever it is, the London bombing. But actually, there's a lot of a lot of uh, cracks to our foundation early life so i'd love to start at the very beginning so tell me where you were born and tell me a little about your family dynamic what your parents did how many siblings okay so uh, i was born in wellington city outskirts of luton um uh, so i was born there in 1985 now uh, my family dynamics i came from a split family my my mother and father split before i can remember so I'm I'm a lonely child through that relationship. I'll, I'll make that one clear. So I'm I'm a I'm I'm a single I'm not a single I'm not a single sibling, but I am through my mother and father. So my mum moved to Corby and Kettering. My father's from Luton, and his family are from Luton. My nan and granddad, who I dedicated my first book to my granddad because he was my hero, and. Um, and yeah, so that my mum was into education, her mum was into education. My father was a soldier back in the day. Um and yeah, my, my granddad was in the army, my great granddad was in the army. So yeah, I spoke. Let's talk about the lineage then. What conflicts because I heard you mention on Paul's podcast that every single soldier that had served in your family actually yeah. came home, which is phenomenal. Yeah. So talk to me yeah, about it's... the conflicts that they were all in. Do you know what? I wish I, I wish I had the medals here to show you. Now I actually have, but it would take me a while to go in and off to get them. But um, so it, it goes back to we've got medals going back to the beyond the First World War. On but this is on both sides. This is both on the close side and on my on, my, on the maiden on my mother's maiden name side as well. But we've got for some reason we've got well not for some reason but we've we've got a bloodline. That, that goes back through generations of people who have served. In fact, my mum's, but my mum's granddad, yeah, my mum's granddad Alex. So my great granddad, who I never, I never met, he passed away. He wasn't actually a soldier in World War Two. He was a firefighter like himself. So he was he, but he so he was dealing with the Blitz and, and everything around London and, and, and whatnot. But um, but military wise. You know, it's like it's not all about the military at the end of the day. Like, it doesn't matter what you do. Everyone should be proud of what they do. At the end of the, you know, you know. Uh, but yeah, so my great granddad was a firefighter during World War. II. One of my great granddads was a firefighter during World War Two. The other great granddad was one of the last off Dunkirk Beach, which which I've got the medal for. I've got his medal. Um, so uh, I've got family that served in the Falklands. I've got family who served in Northern Ireland. Family who served in Iraq, which is myself. Bosnia, myself, Africa, myself, Afghanistan, myself, and also other wars that I went to as a contractor. 
when you think about the Blitz and firefighters in World War II, my great uncle, my granddad, who I actually never met, he passed before I was born, but his brother was some sort of uh, chief level position in the you know the fire service that was yeah. present during World War II. So it's funny. I wonder if they even have met each other. Imagine, imagine, yeah. Can you imagine that? Crazy. Yeah, so what about yeah. with this lens that you have now? You know, we're obviously going to talk about mental health. When you yeah. look back at your dad, at your granddad, are there any elements of their service, understanding mental health, PTSD, et cetera, now that you recognize in them when you were younger? So with my father, we've had a bit of we've had a major discussion about another podcast. So I'd rather not talk about my father at the moment. I'll, I'll talk about things that relate to me, but not that relate to him. Because, no problem. Um, it's just he, we, we recently we, we, he's, he's he's seen a few podcasts. I've done a few, and he's he's more than happy with some, and he's he's not so happy with other things. But 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 to answer your question, my my granddad's my granddad. I was a child when when he passed. You know, well, a child. I was 14, 15 when he when he passed. But uh, my father, I know he's got. I I, I know he's got PTSD. He'll probably get the ask me saying this, but I know he's got PTSD. I can. I don't, I'm not going to say I'm not going to be personal and say how or why I know, but I have PTSD and I can I can tell the people who've got PTSD just by talking to them and listening to them and seeing their actions of life, uh, the way of life. So I know he I know he has it. My other granddad, he served in in in, um, in Egypt. He, he did Suez. He, did, he he was in, he was involved in Suez. Who I've never actually spoke about before. Actually, his name's George, as well. His name's George, and um, he, he recently passed with cancer, unfortunately. Uh, twenty twenty one, I believe. Actually, I just got home from Iraq, and it was almost like he was waiting to see me, it's like the second granddad. But, uh, but, but, yeah. I mean, Spurs. So I, I think I didn't really see the angry side. I've never seen the angry side to my to my granddad's, my father. Was a different story, but when I not not anger towards me, uh, anger towards other people, and and in one occasion trying to help me, which we, which I'm happy to go on to, but but yeah, yeah. So let's speak about that family dynamic. You got your your actual father, your biological father. Talk to me yeah. about the next man that was in your life when you were young. So that man, his name is Andrew, and just. The first podcast I ever did, I, I didn't even want to mention a man's name. He's the father of my brother and my sister. The only good thing to come out of that human being was my brother and my sister. He was mentally abusive to my mother, domestically, and I heard things in private in private areas. I was Um He, I, I was, I. My 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 story. So I started writing my story in 2016 when I was in Yemen as, as a contractor, and I can remember I can remember as far back as when I was five years old, which is when this 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 this, this human being, if you want to call him that, or this narcissistic person, came into my life, and obviously from that from that point in time, he did what he did. He obviously he he um. I didn't obviously no one knew it at first, but he, he had multiple families here, there, and everywhere. He manipulated my mother. He beat my mother through the whole time. He used to beat her, 
but it used to get worse than that. So when my brother and sister came along, so I'm 10 years, my brother's 30, I'm 38. My sister, so I'm like, yeah, my sister's 31, 32. So there's, 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 a, there's a gap. But you see, growing up, whilst I was getting older, I used to have to witness and hear the domestic abuse, him hurting, physically hurting her, her, her in screaming to get out of the bedroom. And the problem was as well, I, I had my brother and sister to take care of as well at the same time. They can't see their mum and they can't see their mum and their and their and their fucking dad be involved in this. So I was in a position where I had to be involved in that and involved in like be, being being the protector. But who'd you protect? Your mum and your brother and sister, and, and you know what's going on. When I was at school at fifteen, at the age of like between fourteen and fifteen, and things got got to the got to the point that that was it. Like that, that, the the bad points started with the worst. Well, maybe it was probably always the sort of the same. But it, uh, during this time, it was the points where I remember distinctly because I'm getting to that age. You know what I mean? And, and I, I was coming home from school. I used to, I used to leave weapons hanging around near near where we lived, and um, I used to go home. I used to do room clearances. I'd literally go in the house, go left, go right, pick up a knife, look look through the house. Because obviously, one minute he's there and then he's left. And there was times where I'd go home and my, my bedroom window would be open, and the, and the fucker would be sat there playing his guitar, and I thought he'd I thought he'd left. And then I'm like, but he wouldn't speak to me. And this is the, this is the thing he abused, he physically abused my brother and my sister as well. He kidnapped my brother once. This is the first time I've mentioned this, actually. He kidnapped my brother once and refused to give him back. He tried to get me arrested at the age of 15 for assaulting him because he was beating my mum. <laughs> you know, he... But um, for years back, before all of this, and I remember it, but I'm not emotional about it because I was too young to be emotional. All I remember seeing is an ambulance in Corbett, Wayford Avenue. And it turned out me and my, me and my mother went to the shop my sister was premature. Unfortunately, we don't get her anymore, but that's just, that's another story. That's life. I've, I've tried to protect her too much and it's probably my downfall in life. Um, it turns out she had a, she ended up having a brain hemorrhage. We'd only gone to the shop for 15 minutes and an ambulance was there and she nearly died again. And she, she, she suffered some brain damage. He, he, he basically shook her. He shook her. And why, why he's not been convicted of these crimes? Maybe if it was today, social services would get involved, and it, it might be a bit different. But back then, I suppose you know. We're, so yeah, we're talking thirty years ago, thirty-eight now. So potentially we're talking thirty-two years ago, um, or whatever. It's, I suppose the system was different. And when you speak about my dad and, and about Trey, my father traits it got to the point where I, I had to separate myself from from Kettering to Luton and my father actually rang me on the on the on the landline at my nan's house and he and he said to me where's this fucker live so he lived in Brayford Avenue Corby I remember I remember it I remember it like it was yesterday I said he li he's living at his sister's house in Brayford Avenue three or four doors down from well from 12 Brayford Avenue which is our house 
And I shouldn't even remember this. I'm 38. I shouldn't remember where I lived back then. You know, it, it's mental. And my nan overheard the conversation and liaised with my mother. By all this time, things things were going on being said. But my father was, was there. And even though we fell out, this is the only one thing that he has done. Fair play to him for it. Regardless of our fallout recently, he he did organise and he was going to be involved in taking this guy out of my life and and my mum's life because I think he still loves her or loved her or maybe he still does I don't know but um, he he was he was going to he, he, he had, there was people in Corby waiting waiting for this guy about to get this guy and we and we're talking firearms we're talking balaclavas he, he was going to he was going to be gone and and the and. At the eight, I was 15, I'm sure I was 15 at the time. In theory, I could have got done for a um, conspiracy to murder, thinking back now as, as an adult. But my mum actually saved this man's life, which is mental, thinking, because my nan rang my, my, nan rang my mum because they kept in good contact, even though it was like, it, it was, so my nan was my dad's mum in London. My nan rang my mother, my mother and told her what she'd heard on the phone. My mum got straight on the case and said, basically to my dad, you're not going to do this. You're not going to do this. So essentially, she saved his life. This man, this this narcissistic male child abu- child domestic abuser. When I say child abuser, I'm not saying sexually uh, for children. So that's another story with my mum. But but he, you know, he, he physically assaulted her and... My mum even saved, potentially saved his life as well, which, which to to her credit, says a lot about my mother as well. Doesn't it? You know what I mean? But you know that 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 was a, that was that was um, pretty shit upbringing. Um, it's not one that you, I did my first podcast with a guy called Richard a pre-book release podcast from the British Legion. Uh, sorry, from the, um, from the, from London, a hotel in London. And um, my mum has watched it on YouTube. And it's the first and only time she's texted me. I'm, I'm looking at my phone now. I'd love to get my phone and read the messages, but I won't. And, uh, and basically, she she was in floods of tears watching the podcast and said, I'm so sorry I put you through it all, your brother and sister. If it wasn't for me, she wouldn't be here anymore. I was I was, I was, was the rock. I was the one that was taking the abuse. And I just said, Mum, we're both fucking victims. We're all, all, all of us are victims. It's not just you, you know? And she, she was like, yeah, but... I was just like, there is no yeah, but don't... The only thing I said to her was, I wish you'd come to me and said this years ago. Because I, during this time, I felt like it used to be my fault. And I used to want the bloke, or I used to want this abuser to hurt me because I knew that I could have him strung up within an hour, a couple of hours. But he'd never touch me. He'd always do it to my mother and his son and his daughter. But she used to fuck, he used to really get to me as well. Do you know what I mean? And... But yeah, I just said the only thing I said to my mum was I wish she'd come and said this to me, to me before, because I felt as though sometimes it might be my fault. It might be my I, I because I was kind of like 
not shunned out. I've made, I ain't no angel, by the way. I'm, I made mistake. I've been out on the piss. I've put my family through. I've, I've, I've been nicked. I've, I've been to court. I've, I've put my mum through hell. I've, I, was, I, was, I was a rogue, I was a rogue child upbringing. She, she ain't had it easy. I'm no angel. But at times I thought, is, is this the reason that I'm not being invited to weddings? I'm not being invited to, uh, to events and, and, is this why I'm the last to know things? Is is, is is this something I've done? And it wasn't until I got these text messages from my mum after watching a podcast, apologising, saying how much she loved me and how, how she, if it wasn't for me, she wouldn't be here anymore. And all I said to her was, I wish I knew this before, because sometimes I feel like my son, who's seven now, is suffering at the same time because he's my son, because I'm not so close to everybody. I'm my own person. I don't. I don't need. I don't need that support from everybody. I. I do my own thing. I look after my own son, my own children, and yeah, it was sad. It, it, it was a sad message to receive, but it was a nice message to receive. But I had to be honest with them. You know, I feel like I, I thought like it might be my fault, or and I, I wish Elliot didn't have to suffer for this as well. But we're slowly, we're slowly getting there now. We're slow. It's, it's, just, it's a long process, you know? Well, that's good. I mean, if it's trending the right way, I think this is the problem and something I'm writing about in my second book now is this multi-generational trauma. You know, you've got whatever your mother's, you know, boyfriend at the time, the abuser, whatever happened to him as a kid made him that way. And I'm sure whatever happened to his grandparents, uh, you know what I mean? So, Do, do, do you know what? I can't comment on his upbringing because I don't know. But what I will say is, this man, this, 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 this you know, he wasn't a soldier, he, but, but he didn't have to be a soldier. He was a lorry driver. Uh, he, but now, somehow, he is a counsellor in Nottingham, I believe. Yeah, a mental health counsellor? I don't know. Listen, I, I've tried to. I've tr last time I tried to contact. Excuse my friend. Last time I tried to contact this fucker, I'm very angry at this man because he's put me through a lot. He won't talk to me. He shit scared me. He, he won't talk to me ever. No, I'm an adult now. You know what I mean? And he might have watched a dozen of these podcasts already. He he knows. He knows that I know what he done. I know that. Look, I can, I can get, I can understand a certain amount of anger, what, what you go through, but I don't, I don't go and beat up a woman or, or um, her children or her animals. That's something I haven't said either. Like, like hurt an animal because of what I've been through. And I certainly would never take it out on a woman in the bedroom. So which, whatever you, whichever way you've been brought up, there's fucking there's stones, there's there's things you don't do. There's there's there's, there's, a, there's a lie, you know what I mean? If I if I have to pull myself away from if I felt if I felt in a situation which which is, which has kind of happened, but um, if if I was in a situation where it's happened in the past, I feel that I can't be with the lady because it's affecting the child as much as I love that lady then I'll I'll move myself from that situation because 
the most important thing is the child. And if you don't do that, you're selfish. Do you know what I mean? And, and it, this, this goes back to my this goes back to my childhood. You know, I want my son to have a better upbringing than me. So, you know, as I'm talking about this, it's quite obvious that the trauma stuff maybe probably did start from home. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is the thing: these conversations now with our generation, we have the opportunity for the domino to stop falling every single time. You know what I mean? And be be better than our parents were. And there's no disrespect to our parents, but you know they. My dad has significant trauma, you know, and and his his you know upbringing before that was traumatic. His parents, you right. know, so you see this ripple effect, and obviously it manifests different. I mean, you know, again, abusing animals, abusing women, God forbid, you know, sexually abusing children. I mean, these are you know unforgivable acts. But going to the root cause and figuring out why this is happening is is part of this conversation. So with your specific journey, obviously it's pretty clear that you've been surrounded by violence. You've been preyed upon in but, your own home. Can I just home. say that, James? No, Sorry, please, I, please. With, with, with the with the sexual thing, that wasn't that was that was to do with my brother and sister. That was to do with somebody else. Yeah, no, no, but, but it's come but, up. But you mean in general? You mean show. general? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, okay. it's way more prevalent than we realize, especially you know. Yeah, yeah of course boys. it is. Yeah. Um. So, but you've got this insecurity at home you know you don't know whether this person's going to be there or not there you know you know like you said show up in your bedroom with you know playing guitar or playing mind games with you um your dad you know there, there's violence in your dad's world as well as you kind of you know alluded to um when you were in the school age did violence become one of your emotional outbursts even when you were younger well yeah as i said in the radio the other day i was on the bbc radio uh no fans i I'm, I'm heavily dyslexic as well. So I was going, so through school, I was struggling with reading and writing. Dyslexia wasn't a commonly known thing back then. So you got no disrespect to, to people that have got autism or or, or anything else, you know, uh, Asperger's or that. No, no, dis, um, no, no disrespect to them whatsoever. But, but you, when you was, because I was dyslexic back then, you kind of got tied with the same, you had to get put in the same sort of, if if you showed the signs of, of struggling, you'd get put in the same room as people that do struggle for a re- for a different reason. Yeah, and and then you, you can't, but you can't. Is it you know, it, it, or even people with Down syndrome, you'd be put in the same pe- in the same sort of class. And I don't want to say tied with the same brush because there's no there's nothing wrong with these people. That it it, it, it's, it happens. Everyone's 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 you know. There's no bad or wrong in anybody. It doesn't matter how you are able, you know. But when you know that you're struggling, but you know you're not stupid, you're not, you know you're not stupid, but you're being sort of treated as though you have worse learning difficulties than we have. There's there's no there's no there's no working mechanism there for dyslexia back then. Now there is, yeah. obviously. Same as PTSD when I was in the army. There was no, there was no, there was no mechanism for it. There was no, there was no help. There was no help factor. So what I started doing at school was to rather rather than being singled out, which happened a few times uh, as a as struggling, I just act the clown. So I act the clown because it's easy to get sent out of class being a clown than it is for someone to come in and go, "You're not reading properly. You're not writing properly." And, and then at the same time, you've got the shit going at home. 
So I used to try to get myself suspended from school anyway in order to get home to make sure that fucker wasn't there anyway. So it was just a big, it was a ripple affair. It's hamster wheel. You know what I mean? It just went on and on and on. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, and it turns, I mean, yeah, it even got as bad as, you know, you get your so-called hard mates at school and, and all this and all this sort of bollocks and whatever. Got to the point where I'd just be like, you know what, we'll just, we'll go home at lunchtime with a crate of beer, fake IDs, get the beer from the shop, go, to, go, go home because I knew mum's working and then I knew I had a bit of backup. I never told them that. So it's, they'll, they'll, they'll know now because I've, I've done podcasts. But like, it was just like, yeah, I mean, just act the clown, get suspended. Fuck, fuck GCSEs because I'm joining the army anyway. So I don't need them. So, so that's, that's basically how, you know, it, it was just, yeah, it was, it's, it's mental thinking back about it. What about sports? What were you playing back then in school age? I was put, played football. I wanted to box, but the school didn't, obviously school school wouldn't let you box. So I boxed in the playground instead. With we other kids, or in the field, or with my boyfriend. But there you go. That that was that was inspiring. But um, yeah, football, football, and then box. I did, I did do I did do boxing anyway. But but mum mum didn't want me to do it. But I just did it anyway. But I had to, I had to use my, my uh, paper on money to, to do it and get someone else to write on the disclaimer for me. Just basically try to blag it the whole time. But yeah. Basically, football, football and boxing, self-defense, bit of karate. Beautiful. What about the the military? You said, you know, by that point, you want to go in the army. What Was that something you were always dreaming of, or is that... So, I, I joined... I joined... No, I, I joined... For some reason, I just... I knew from a young age I wanted to be a soldier. But I didn't want to be a soldier-soldier. I, I didn't want to be... I, I, I didn't know about different trades back then. I just knew I wanted to be a fighting soldier from a very young age, a combat fighting soldier, a frontline soldier. That's all I knew. Didn't know what regiments you could join, didn't know trades, didn't, didn't give a fuck either. Just wanted to join, just wanted to go and join and be, be a fighting soldier. I did join the army at the age of 12, 13, 12, 13, where I met some very good people. One, one I'm still very good friends with today is that old instructor. <laughs> And um, his name's Mike. He's, you know, he's, he's a very good friend of mine, even now. And uh, yeah, did the army cadets up until a certain age, but then it got to the point where I can I can go out and get pissed now. So I used the army cadets as an excuse, and then whip the uniform off and go on the piss instead, and, and start fighting with grown adults at the age of sixteen. <laughs> so, but yeah, 15, 16. But no, I, I enjoyed the training. But no, I don't, I don't think anything can prepare a, a child to go and even a, a hostile upbringing. I don't think anything can really, really prepare a child at a young age to go and join the military for a fighting regiment and what's going to come next. And I think I don't think it's possible, really. It's, it think like thinking think the first time I said this, but 
I knew that I wanted to go and fight people and I wanted to I wanted to go and fight. I, I didn't want to go and fight for my country because I was a child, didn't know anything about politics, didn't care about politics. I didn't want to go out and murder those people. I just wanted to I just wanted to join I just wanted to, I wanted to go to war as a child. And maybe that was because I challenged so much anger from as a child and an upbringing, and I wanted to get it out. And the only way to get it out maybe was to join the army. I don't know. I can't, I can't, I can't, I ain't got the answer to that. But that's the truth. Did your granddad tell you stories of war? Did, did it kind of draw you into the camaraderie, the service, well, the courage, etc.? Yeah, to be fair, to be fair, most Remembrance Sundays, as obviously it's coming up next Sunday, Remembrance Sunday. Um, I did go to a lot of, uh, I did go to, I was, I did go to a lot of Remembrance Day parades in Luton with my granddad and and my father. I think he might have turned up a few times, and yeah, and obviously the army cadets brought that sense of being part of something as well. I mean, and that's, a good, I mean, maybe that's a good good question as well, and and maybe I'm I'm, I'm sp- being part of something because when I was growing up and I'm only thinking about this now I'm not saying this on any other podcast I'm, I'm actually thinking about it now and maybe I just I, yes I wanted to go and fight didn't have anything against the people just wouldn't have cared I wasn't going to fight the country maybe I just wanted to be part of something I wanted to be part of something and go and, and, and let me anger out somewhere you know and I then, think there's yeah. also another thing with us in uniform where especially if you've been victimized when you were younger, I think you're drawn into service because you want to protect others. You protected your siblings, you protected your mother when you could, but I think putting a uniform is another way of protecting. And it's a faceless person that you're protecting. It might be in Nazi Germany, it might be Taliban, you know, run Afghanistan, whatever it is. But I think being part of the solution um, is another draw to us, you know, and you get to channel that physicality, you get that that tribe that you're part of, you get that purpose, but you're also now a helper in the world, you're a protector and, and stopping the victimization and the pain that you felt yourself as a child. That's, that's a good comment, James, it really is. I mean, what I thought recently, after speaking to a lot of people recently, I've found no disrespect to, and if they watch this, no disrespect. I'm not. I'm not mentioning your names. Excuse me. I'm not mentioning your names, but I've never ever been scared being shot. At. Or having more going in my head. I've never been afraid to die. The first time I fought rounds in anger, which you'll probably come on to anyway in Iraq, but that, at that point, that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a. A learning curve for me. Things did slow down. I did shake, but after that, it was like I ain't gonna fuck anymore. But I, I did it for the right reasons. But I've I've noticed through a lot of people that I've spoke to, see a lot of people. When I came out with on PTSD in 2010, I was on GMTV. Radio Four Kill Factor came to me. Um, I was in a Japanese newspaper published in Japan. I was on in a Daily Mirror. I, I I was in, I was in a lot of press. A lot of people, because they were still within the system, i.e. the regiment that I was in, didn't particularly like me coming out with. Oh, I've got PTSD. 
So you get segregated. But you know now they've read my book, listened to podcasts, particularly and some of the best soldiers, and they're now and they're now supportive. They're now supporting me in what I'm trying to achieve here, which is to get the word out for PTSD. Um, not, and, and it doesn't. You don't have to go to fucking Iraq or Afghanistan or Bosnia or Somalia to get it. A lot of people are coming to me saying, "Your story's touched home," and I've gone. To, I've had a few people say they've gone. Doctors have been diagnosed. People have had the same upbringing. And these were people that I didn't even particularly get on, uh, not not get on with, but didn't really interact with in the army. And certain people didn't particularly agree with me coming out back then and saying, I've got a problem. However, you know, now, now they're coming to me and, and, and it's, and it's a good feeling, you, you know, it, it is, it is a good feeling. I just need, I need it. To, I need it to get, I need it to get bigger. I need it to get bigger. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, um, a lot of a lot of soldiers, as well, and not just soldiers. People like yourself who are, are heroic in firefight, yeah, firefights, fires, firefights, and fires are different. I've noticed that a lot of the guys that, so obviously you, you as a firefighter, um, myself, without bigging myself up and. Some other people. I did a I did a podcast with Chris. He's an ex marine recently as well. It seems to be a lot of the guys that not heroic. I don't want to say heroic because that's the wrong term. But let's get in there. Let's get the job done. Have come from a, tr- a troubled upbringing. That's how it's. It seems to. It, it, it's. It kind of seems to. So I mean, I've been in Afghanistan and under under fire. Yes, I've been to Iraq beforehand, but when you've got when you've got bullets coming over your head and you've got mortars landing and you need to fire the mortars back and you ain't got no hardcover, you see, some people, not all, but the first couple of times, try to try to dig dig a shell scrape, try to dig a hole with their with their fingers, because no 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 amount of training can 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 uh, train you to be. Be used to having bombs like like coming down next year, just like no, you know I've done it when I did my anti piracy course. I had to do a I had to do a firefighter thing. So like if there's a boat, if there's a fire on a boat, so I've had my I've had my um, what do you call it? You, you, your mask. man, yeah, yeah, the oxygen tank and everything. But you know, I mean, I wouldn't know what it's like to run into a fire, a real fire, and pull a human being out. I'm I'm, I'm not trained for that. Could I do it? I'd, I'd, if it was my son, I'd do it without without anything on. But what I mean by that is, you know, you, you can get trained to do these these things, but when it comes to it, it, it seems to be people. I might be wrong here. Some people might agree or disagree, but I think a lot of people, a lot of people that have been through a troubled, a troubled child upbringing, for some reason, wants to do these jobs, and it's like you said, maybe to help protect or give a bit back. And uh, the better ones at that job. I'm not saying you have to have had a bad upbringing in order to be a good firefighter or a soldier, or you're going to be shit if you haven't had a bad upbringing. But I think it just gives it it gives a bit more about you, you know. And you know, I'm hanging my I'm hanging out all my dirty laundry here for the world to see it. I don't have to do this. Do you know what I mean? But I'm doing it because there's too many people hanging themselves. There's too many people. 
turn into addiction, drugs, drink. The, the prison population is too big for ex-soldiers and public service. Domestic violence is on the rise. And, yeah, and, and let's face it, apart from charities, who's there, who, who's there to give a fuck, really? Once you're out of that organisation, there's no one there. There's, there's literally no one there to help, apart from people that do podcasts like yourself and and are there to talk and, and listen to others. I've interviewed almost 850 people now, and a lot of them are you know, military and first responder. And it's amazing how many have a pretty rough upbringing. And I think the the, the story of hope is that if you can pass through that PTSD, you start processing with all the tools that are available and get to that point, it becomes a strength. It becomes the ability to tell your story on a podcast and write a book about what you went through. Yeah. And that's, I think, the, the, the hope element. But yeah absolutely the the real you know part of the mental health message in uniform that's missing is what happened before you ever put the uniform on you know so so many people i think listen to to all the podcasts that are out there where people are talking about it people like yourself and it's it's me too and that that me too word got kind of uh abused recently but it is it's like holy shit that happened to me you know and that's why yeah. people are like well how come this guy was only a royal marine for a year and then he then he hung himself. Well, how come this firefighter was on six months and then they they stuck a yeah. gun in their mouth? Because we haven't asked about what happened before, you know. So it's it's such an important conversation. It really is. I want to move to your your military journey. Um, yeah. I know there were some kind of bumps in the road. So walk me through to when you finally joined the Coldstream Guards. Yeah, I I I wanted to get in the army as quick as I could. I, I, all I knew is I wanted to join a fighting regiment. And the, the easiest, quickest way in at the age of 16 was to join the Army Foundation College. So I went, I went, I went to do that. And obviously, my granddad being my hero, and who, like I said, I dedicated his first book to. Last time I seen him, I promised him I'd be a soldier. I put my phone up to him, he put his phone up to me, and he, he died that night. And, you know, broke my heart, broke my fucking heart, absolutely broke my heart. Uh, you know, it did when my nan died as well. But I was, that was, was just like this man who, uh, you know, I hope Elliot loved my, I, I hope my children and Elliot, Elliot's my youngest, I hope they love me as much as I love my granddad. Do you know what I mean? And have that much respect for. So, so turn the world inside out. But when I failed my first selection, because I had a, an inhaler when I was 12, 16, I thought, fuck, what do I do now? Like tears in my eyes, going home. So what do I do now? You know, I got angry on the train on the way home. Went to the, went to the local shop, bought some beers, got drunk. I just thought, what do I do? Like I, my whole my whole world now has crashed down on me because I had my whole all my hope built up on the army. So that's what I was going to do. It just bit me in the arse. I've 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 lost. I've I'm kept promise to my granddad. I haven't. You know what I mean? It was just, it was just like, what now? What? So, I had, I had a bit of time thinking. Work was working for some fast food restaurants in, in Kettering and doing some agency work. Then I thought, oh, TA, TA was in Corby, so I joined the TA. Back then, it wasn't um, like it is now. It wasn't a, a JPA system where everything's linked on computer. You, you could go fail one, and you know, you, I could have probably gone to another recruiting office and got in the army. Just 
bullshitting. But, you know, I, I left it, you know, so I went and joined the uh, Remy, one way recovery unit in, in, in Corby. Went through their training, passed, passed their medical. Didn't tell them I'd failed selection for the army. So obviously it's the reserves now. So I started training as a rec, uh, a, a recce mech. And this is where I started realising, oh, it's different parts of the army. The army's not all about fighting. So I was, I was trained as a, rec, uh, a recovery mechanic. It, it didn't suit me. I was fucking around with chains and, and how to, you know, recover vehicles. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I don't want to do this. I want to be out on the ground with a, an SAE shooting, doing tactics, field craft. So it wasn't my thing. Went to join the Foreign Legion. Applied, wanted to join the Foreign Legion because I thought I'd never get in the regular army. So, I mean, this just shows the mentality of me at this age. I mean, what what 18-year-old, 17-year-old wants to join the Foreign Legion? I mean, fucking hell, you know? So, I started looking into Foreign Legion. They said I could join at 18. I'd have to go to Marseille. I, I was pestering my mum as well. You need to do a, You need to send appeals off. You need to send appeals off. So, when I got to my 18th birthday, I was, I was bang. I was going to go to Foreign Legion getting prepared to go to the Foreign Legion. I got a letter through basically saying you're appeal, you're now 18, you can go to Crimey Park Hospital, go, go on a, basically I had to go on a treadmill with, with a mask on and they had to assess my lungs, my breathing and all this, all this crap. And I passed. So the Foreign Legion left my head, fuck the Foreign Legion. My recruiting office, my recruiting sergeant was called Street Guard. And obviously that had some influence influence on what I joined. Back then, again, I got some book, book leaflets on the cultural guards. Not very good at reading anyway. I didn't I didn't care. I was just like, is it a fine regiment? Are they elite? Yes, they are. Right, let's go with that then. Now looking back, it's the oldest fighting regiment in the British Army, so I'm proud to serve the cultural guards. And we, and we did a fucking good job as well on every tour we went to. And they, and they, will, they will continue to do that. Um, you know, but um, but yeah, October, October thirteenth, uh, two thousand and three, I was a catcher doing a basic training, and that's where that journey began. So, where was the first place you found yourself deployed? Because I know listening to Paul, I'm not well versed with the Coldstream Guards, but understanding that there's a kind of ceremonial element in London. But now 2011, uh, sorry, 2001, you know, the, the towers fall and now the Allied nations are heading to the Middle East again. So where did you find yourself first? So the, course, the, the ceremonial duties get split between all the household division, uh, not household division, the, 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 the guards, yeah. Actually, the household division, but they, they all do different jobs. So the Coulson guards, the Irish guards, the Welsh guards, the Scots guards, uh, the Welsh guards, they all have their they will they will have their turn at doing ceremonial duties. But they've all got their, they've all got the ceremonial companies as well. So usually what would have happened would have been you finish your basic uh six months training and you go to their ceremonial company, which mine would have been it would have been Wellington Barracks, and that would have been number seven company, and that would have basically been like a phase phase three training. But hitting ceremonial and then go to your battalion. 
But look, as luck would have it, our battalion was going to Iraq in 2005. So I passed out on St. George's Day 2004. And they, me and one other, and they shipped us straight over to Aldershot and basically prepared to go to a, go to Iraq in 2005. Basically, the Optag train started. So my first my first point of deployment was Iraq, 05. 19, 20 years old. And I thought, I thought all my Christmas had come at once. So a question I ask everyone, and the reason is not so much in England, especially in America, we get a very polarized view on the news of war, either very pro-war, yeah. kill them all, let God sort them out, very yeah. anti-war, they're all baby killers. killers. And then you have the men and women, you know, the boys and girls, arguably, that are actually sent overseas, you know, to actually do the job. So the first part of the question regardless of the politics that sent you out there and as you mentioned you know you weren't super engrossed in you know the, the service of the country politics. anyway yeah was there a moment where you realized okay there are some horrific people out here that we do need to take care of you know what i just i could have got sent to iraq afghanistan some, I, I could have got sent to congo i, I didn't care I, I i was just fulfilling my childhood dream to go to war. As it happened, it was Iraq and Saddam Hussein was on the run. But it, it was just, uh, yeah, it was quite early on as well, 2005. It wasn't long after the invasion. Think, think, it was a shit state out there in Basra in 2005. But it was, I, I didn't care. I, I literally just wanted to get there and be, be what I wanted to be. I just wanted to go, I just wanted to go, it sounds mad, but at the age of 19, 20, I just wanted to go to war. It's just what, you know, if, if, put it this way, if I was in America, if I was an American in the 60s, if I was American in the 60s, I would have, I would have just signed up to go to Vietnam. That's that's the sort of, I, I just wanted to go. Not not for my country, not because the news said it was horrific out there, but in my own brain, I just knew I, I, that's what I had to do and what I wanted to do. So, yeah. But I, obviously, I got sent there for probably the wrong reasons, looking back on it now. And the organisation, which I'm now against, but which, which we can come on to, but I wanted to go as a child on my own. Um, so, yeah, I, you know what? Would I join, A good question would be, would I join the army if there was no wars going on? Probably, but may I, I might have gone to the Foreign Legion. I don't know. Uh, it, 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 I, I really, you know, history's history, isn't it? You know what I mean? But you've come from, you know, urban southeast of England. Now you find yourself over there. Your motivation was to just simply go to war. But as far as what you found yourself around, did you start seeing the enemy, as it were? You start seeing some of the horrors that were being done to the Iraqi people? Unfortunately, Iraq was, was, uh, Iraq was a hard one because luckily or unluckily, I've been to other war zones quite a lot. And then um, back then it was you know, you had your Sunnis, you had your Shiads, and they were fighting each other. But I, I at, at that age, you don't get briefed on who's the good guys, who's the bad guys. And unfortunately in 2005, a lot of the a lot of the incidents that were happening was IDF, indirect fire on, on onto our bases and IEDs out on the ground, which used to, which which really used to fuck us off. Well, it used to fuck me off because if someone's going to blow you up and you're not dead, you want to fight, you want to fight them. 
and, and like so at least at least if there's a follow-up shoot and you're not dead you, you can fight you can fire back at them but when, when an ID goes off and you get called out for QRF, which happens to me a lot of the time, you go on QRF, quick reaction force, set a cordon up to a blown up vehicle that have got dead coalition troops in them or close protection officers, mercenaries, whatever, you start to think, what the fuck's this all about? You know, you know, and then obviously I did the first incident that happened to me on the same tour and I was the first, first person to do it on the Sanger. But, um, yeah, yeah, it it, it, opened, it opened your eyes. It, it what? Like I said, I don't know what I expected. I don't know what I expected out there. I, it, but you, I was quite quick at adapting anyway. I was quite, I was quite quick at adapting to the scenario that I was in. And, you know, what is hard? What what is hard? What was hard and what's still hard is at least in Afghanistan, we went that way. And we knew the Taliban were going to be shooting at us and we were going to be shooting them back. Whereas Iraq was very different. It was very urban, fibula-based, fighting built-up area bases. But you'd go through you'd go through a village where you was giving water to the children, doing hearts and minds on the Monday. And then on the Sunday, on the Wednesday, sorry, your mates been blown up in the same village. And you're like, what the fuck? What the fuck? I thought they were our friends. Like, what, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, the police are involved in s- certain. One minute there's a, a bomb gone off, but then the police are there, and it's like we all know about the corruption out there back then, anyway. And you're like, I'm, but I, I, at the time, I didn't think that. Now I look back and think, what a load of bollocks, you know? Like what an absolute lie! Is so corrupt, and looking back now, it's so obvious. So the other side of the coin, you're in these and it can be in other countries as well you're in these places where these conflicts are going on i think again you used the term earlier tarring with the same brush what the the media does very poorly here is they say oh we're at war with afghanistan we're at war with iraq when we're at war with extremists within those countries who are actually right. terrorizing their own people so what about moments of kindness and compassion you talked about hearts and minds with the water whether it was your fellow soldiers whether it was the indigenous people when you were around such horrendous, um, you know, war zones, were there moments that struck you of normality or kindness and compassion when you look back? What from what from the locals? From from anything? Um, I don't really know. I mean, it, it, you, you know, it's it's, it's hard. You, you've got the thing is, when you're at war, you're at war, and the minute you let your guard down, if you start. Some people will show will take kindness as weakness. This is what this is a problem. A lot of people take kindness as weakness. They do it down the pub. They they they, they do it. They do it in a job. A boss will do it. You know, people will take kindness for weakness. And if you let your guard down and you show too much kindness, then that's the time you're vulnerable, aren't you? So you you, you have to you have to you have to maintain professionalism. I was I I wasn't I was a father, but I wasn't a dedicated father as bad as that may sound. I wasn't attached to my, to my daughter back then, or my son. Um, I was I was a young man. I was you know, nineteen, twenty years old in Iraq. I, I I just didn't want to get involved with the locals who come up to you. 
begging for food, begging for this, begging for water, blah, blah, blah. Which is sometimes you give them a bottle of water. With the kindness and compassion side, there were, you know, there were times where we would have to go do a cordon and the, the office, an officer of a non-kinetic would go in and uh, go on about building the school, rebuilding the school. So you're doing a bit of guard, stagging on while whilst this is happening. But then around the corner, you're getting blown up again. It's it's hard. It's hard. It's, you, you, you're sort of like, you know, I mean, I can, I can, I can give some good examples in Afghanistan as well. You know, it's, it's kind of who who pays more on the day, who who pays more on the day, who who's going to give you the most. Uh, if they're going to give you a thousand dollars to set up a bomb in your in your village, are you going to take it? But if we're going to pay you this to help you, but I mean, you know, then we had a in Basra, we had this, we had this guy, uh, Iraqi guy who lived. He lived miles away. He lived miles away from Basra. He lived miles away from Basra, and he used to come down. He used to come down every day at his own little shop at the hotel, and he used to bring. He used to bring us. He used to have like coke. He'd bring. He'd even bring dirt, dirty, dirty DVDs for the lads to watch. <laughs> you know, he he he, he, he used to he, he's like little looky looky man. You know, he used to have his own little shop, like all dodgy like Band of Brother DVDs and everything. Things for, things for us to watch. One day he didn't turn back up to work and his shop didn't open. And everyone was thinking, well, where's this guy gone? It turns out that he was assassinated by him and his family were all assassinated because he was found working for coalition forces. So, so he's like, where, where, where'd you go from that? You know what I mean? It's, it's fucking crazy. And really, did, did the coalition forces go and help him? Did they, they help his family? Probably not. He probably tried to earn a few quid and had his whole family wiped out and and the government and, and the and the, the forces out there at the time probably didn't give a fuck either. I don't know, I can't comment. But I can't imagine him can't imagine him his family and being looked after, can you? Not now. Yeah, I mean even now. I've just had a guy from um Afghanistan, he lives in the US at the moment, but he's talking about the plight of the afghani people or the afghan people excuse me now you know we we withdrew and it was like all right we're done with that oh ukraine let me go help you now but they're starving to death they're about to go into another deep winter where a lot of them are going to freeze to death and they're having you know tens and tens and tens of children just in this one area that he knows that are dying almost every single day then you add the taliban in again you know and now i just saw that pakistan is going to evict every afghan refugee or you know immigrant that they have there so now that's another one and a half million people pushed back into the country so yeah i mean it's it's interesting so many people from all backgrounds as far as geography australian you know british american canadian they all struggle with this like we know we did good things when we were there we helped build the school we get you know we dug wells we protected these these villages but you know when they leave and then these these towns and cities are just taken back over again and the people that were helping were now strung up from light poles you know how do you justify that it's 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 hard for the average person in uniform to look back and not carry some guilt and shame for you know not supporting the people that risked their lives and risked their families lives to help us when we were over there well i, I feel bitter about it now because we used to take some good ground off the taliban but then we it's, it's, a, it's a classic Vietnam story, Afghanistan. And, like, 
we're still in Iraq at the minute. I mean, like my last contract was in Iraq with the DID and Al-Assad. At least you still got a footprint in Al-Assad Al Air Base uh, in Iraq. Whereas Afghanistan, we've got fuck all now. I mean, well, I don't know why you, why you evacu evacuate a country and leave billions of dollars, loads of weapons, Apache aircraft, unless you wanted to go into Russia at some point, run through the back door. I'm, I'm just saying that on the back of things, like building up a, you know, build, build, building up a repertoire with, with the old enemy. It wouldn't be the first time. But, you know, luckily, I, I mean, I've lost friends in Afghanistan. Don't get me wrong. Luckily, I'm, I've lost children. Uh, believe me, if, if I lost my son, if my son was a, was a servant soldier and went to Afghanistan and lost his life, or he or she lost their life, Right here, right now, I'll be thinking, what the fuck's this government doing? They've been out there fighting for a so-called so-called peace of minds to protect these people because it's all good, it's all good and meant to be. My my son or daughter was killed out there doing a job, and they just they just leave. What was we there for? What were we there for them? Or were we there for them? Or was or, or was nine or was nine eleven? And God bless everyone at nine eleven. Was that just a bullshit reason to go into another country and evade it for another for another for another for another hidden agenda? Do you, do, do you know what I mean? And and you can't because you know you, you don't. It, let's face it, Iraq has got a lot of oil. That's why. That's why we. That's why we still got contract. That's still. That's why we still got contractors in 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 Iraq now. BP, everything. You know, Afghanistan's got minerals, but it had. You know, the biggest, the biggest opium, the biggest opium source is the Taliban, and you need opium. So who's to say that there hasn't been a deal struck up somewhere from some high politician for another politician, and it's like, oh right, we'll just give that back now. Oh. I don't trust any of the any of the people in power anymore that 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 say this is the reason we're going over here. This is the reason we're going there because you just can't trust the word that comes out of their mouth. Do you know what I mean? And, and the minute and it doesn't matter whether you fly a Hercules, an Apache, or if you're a grunt on the ground. Once you're out of that system, once 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 you're out of that organisation, they don't care about you. They'll they'll string up dry. They don't want to hear. You. They don't want to support you. They don't want to. They may be homeless. The army does, you know what I mean? And sorry, not the army, not my regiment, the Ministry of Defence. They they don't they don't they don't give two shits about the people. All they they all they care about is themselves and and what's going on further above me me you and other people will never ever know. We're just pawns to be used at the end of the day, are we? You know, and and the reason I went back as a contractor to do it after I got my head straight. Well, I say straight. Once I got it in a, a a capable working mechanism, the reason I went back was because I was good at my job, and it's where I felt comfortable. But essentially, I went and I I did it for choice. I did it for choice anyway. I, I wanted to join the army, but I, I essentially I went back for money in the end. I went back to earn better money and carry on doing all I knew what all I know basically. You know. It, I didn't. I didn't look like, like I say. I didn't want to. I wanted to be a fine soldier. If you was to ask me now, would, would I advise my seven-year-old to join the army? It'd be. I'd have to. I'd have to answer that really hardly because I. I don't think it's. I think it's good, 
But I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want him to join a fighting regiment. I'd advise him go, probably go to the Navy, the Air Force, learn a trade, take some, take something from them for free whilst they're paying you that you can take out into Civvy Street and make it in Civvy Street. Because that's essentially that's what's going to happen later on anyway. Because you're not always going to be you're not always going to be incorporated in once once you're out of their system, you're out of their system. Doesn't matter what trade, you know. Well, when you said about you know the the reasons behind it, I remember just as a civilian going, nine eleven happens and we're going into Iraq, and to me it's like Mexico invades somewhere and they retaliate with Canada. You know, it's two different countries, and so I yeah. think. Yeah, it was disgusting seeing that kind of lumped in. And you know, I think a lot of people now will all agree, a lot of the veterans on here, like, yeah, that we were told one thing and then it was, you know, the other thing was actually the reality. Did they make a difference while they were there? Yes. But, you know, has a lot of it reverted back to the way it was before? Also, yes. Well, it's even worse now, isn't it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you've left a void now. Yeah. And there's no getting back into Afghanistan. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, they're not going to trust us now, are they, the way we left the last time? Um, just before we get to the mental health transition story, when you look back, you've already got, you know, a huge amount of trauma in your early life. You transition into the military, you go overseas. Are there any incidents when you reflect now that really compounded that kind of, you know, trauma that you already had some, some ones that really kind of haunted you? Well, as in, as in out in hostile countries? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, a, a few, a few in this book here. We're more full of Joe. Like I've still got to do the second one. The uh, uh, second one's ready to go. Actually, the second book's ready to go. But um, let this one be. <clears throat> let this one be. Let people get scripts of this one first, and, and and hear the podcast go out and absorbed. The first time I took lethal lethal force, lethal aim shots at somebody was in, was in Iraq. I wasn't being shot at at the time, which is that which is documented in this book and many other podcasts. It, um, it was. I, I fired a warning shot on one vehicle. It slowed down. It stopped. Half hour later, same thing happened. Flat bit of vehicle with three, three Iraqis in it. Sorry, they weren't Iraqis, but I, I wasn't. It's no difference. Um, fired a warning shot. The vehicle sped up rather than slow down. So I know I, I split second decision. What do I do? So I took, I took aim shots at the driver. Do I? Do I? Do I regret that decision? No. I actually got a recommendation for that for my actions because I, I followed the rules of engagement in Cardova to, to the letter of the law. Turned out, allegedly, they were news reporters. He was a news reporter. Uh, that's all I know. I had to, do a, I had to go to the, the RMPs, do a, do a statement with the RMPs, the Royal Ministry of Police, and that was that. That was it. Um, but, so, you know, the, there was there was time where, where I started to see a difference in the military I was I was great then. I was great back then, doing that. I came home with R and R, rest of recuperation, and I got myself. Uh, you know, even driving down, even I say MSR, even driving down the road from IF Bryce Norton, I remember having seen seeing a wire across the road, and I was going, I went, stop, 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 stop. In my head, I, I was I was back on the MSR, and I thought it was a command wire, and I got out of the vehicle, and then. I oh, smelling the grass and the frost. The driver's like, "You're right." The guy who drove me, I said, "You're right." And I, I, I came back to reality, and I thought, "What the fuck am I doing?" 
in England. So I just said, oh, yeah, I need a piss. You know, I just need a piss. So I went, went stage away. I'm not going to say, oh, I thought it was a bomb on the side of the road because I think, fucking nuts, mate, you're in England. But, you know, and, but like other, other things, but after that, there was a big riot in, in Iraq called the Jamiat riots. Two SES lads were arrested in Basra, and it, it all went it all went mental. And walls got uh, walls got drove into for tanks, and a lot of lethal force was used. Allegedly, civilians were killed. I was involved in the incident, as in the whole incident as a, as a whole. And the and there was a guy that got out of the Wario, sat on fire with a petrol bomb. It was horrendous. He'd seen it on screen. It was on Sky News. But after all of that, I I was in a, a vehicle convoy that broke down. To cut, a long, to cut a very long story short, I was in a vehicle convoy that broke down. And the uh, the warrior went past us. It was a very big convoy. The threat level went up. All the hearts and minds got out the window after this, after this jamming riot. And it was sort of towards, it was getting towards the end of the tour anyway. And we was just like, yes, there was, there was half a multiple in a, in a snatch snatch vehicle. And we was just just like, right, we'll set up a vehicle checkpoint. And like I said, to cut a very long story short, yeah, we, one vehicle kept coming in and out. We, we expected the vehicle to turn around, the convoy to turn around and come and get us. But no one come and got us. One vehicle kept coming through. They're not stupid. The threat level was very high. We had no comms, limited limited kit, and we was on our own. So I, I come up with the idea of stealing a police car. Uh, stealing a car. Police car comes into a later. Steal, stealing a local's car. But I was I was, I was I was I was mindful of this this vehicle that kept coming in up and down at the NSR. So we basically I pulled one of them out. Put, got the other guy to pull the other guy out. My colleague. Mac, his name was Mac. We plastic off their hands. They, we found a weapon in their car. I said to the rest of the mall pool, bearing in mind I was a junior rank at this point as well. I said, I said, let's get let's get in this fucking vehicle and do a runner. Blow the snatch up. Let's, we've been there hours. We were vulnerable. Half of us, when I say half mall pools, was half section. So we were talking five, six lads. And um we got into the mall, we three of us got into the car, the others were a bit hesitant. So it's not right. So I had to then uncuff these Iraqis, say, you know, try and speak a bit of Arabic, say sorry. Salam alaikum, malikum salam, peace, 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 peace. Not that they really wanted to wear that anymore. They've just been plastic cuffed up. Put them back in the vehicle. The vehicle's driving off. And I was, well, we're fucked now. We're compromised. We're just showing that we've just done something that shouldn't have happened. I say shouldn't happen, doesn't happen. So we we basically we tabbed off to the base that we come from as it was a proven route, and we 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 got hit from the got hit. It was about twelve k we had to walk uh, tab tactically. We did it tactically. We got hit from the right. Whether they warning shots or not, I don't know. But the phone crack went over our heads. Peeled into the desert. Tactically, moved through the desert. Didn't fire. I wanted to fire back. I was dying to fire back. But at the end of the day, there wasn't that many of us. We had no comms. We, we, we'd, we'd have got, we'd have got, we'd have got, we'd have, we'd have, we'd have died. We'd have been, we, we, no way we could be have sustained that. Not with what, what, what we had on us. 
So we was t- we was all the way back to Shiver. There was a mate, there was a there was a um a, a vehicle checkpoint man from the Iraqi police. But at this point, we knew it was there. We had night vision, and we were thinking well, the problem is <laughs> the problem is with this is the fact we've took people out of the car, going to take their cars, drive to Shiver. Few miles, a few k up the road. This happened when they're warning shots, direct shots, whatever, from a compound. And now we've got a, now we've got, a, now we've got to go past a, an Iraqi vehicle, uh, vehicle checkpoint, permanent, permanent vehicle checkpoint. These guys could have told these the police, there's five armed guys, there's five British soldiers, there's five militants. They don't, I don't know. They they could be on the lookout for. Some blokes walking up the road with an RPK, they just smash us to bits. Do you know what I mean? So we have to be mindful of this. So we came up with the, the idea to tactically pepper pot, bounce forward. Charlie Dell, a fire team, cover, go forward. Turns out the guy in this in the tower was asleep, which isn't uncommon. Thank fuck anyway, and the other guy was asleep. And at this point, we were going to steal the police car. We'd, we'd come up with the idea, enough's enough. We're fucking tired. We've run out of water. It's been a long night, eventful but long. Let's just get let's get back to Shiva. Luck as luck would have it, a, a, a multiple of soldiers from Shiva Logistic Base came to the police station. We thought they were looking for us. They weren't. They were like, "Who the fuck are you?" And when we told them what had happened, they they were from one Royal Irish Regiment. And when they looked, when they said, "They're like." Who are you? And we told them, they're like, nah, so, mate, seriously, this is what's happened. So they, so they, they, they rescued us essentially, took us back to Shiva, and their commanding officer shook up, shook every one of our hands and said, if you were our troops, we would be writing you up. We would be, we would be writing you up for a, for some sort of award, military award, because you've gone above and beyond service here. You, you don't get trained for this. It shouldn't have happened. And you've dealt with it in a professional manner, and we'd be proud of you. And what really fucked me off was my regiment. Sorry to say it, but it's true. Covered the whole thing up. It didn't happen. They picked us up the next day, and it was you lot getting the fucking vehicle. And we basically got told this does not get spoken about ever again. Even people with the regiment didn't even know it happened. It got covered up that much, and it it, it, it was then I started thinking, all right, hang on. So it's good for it's good for you when it's good for you. When it's not good for you, someone's got to take a bit of responsibility. The shit rolls downhill massively. And that, you know, that that really, that really pissed me off. And then other things that happened after that, I just started seeing through it, started seeing through it. And now now I'm out of it and I look back. Like I said about the PTSD discharge statistic, it's just yeah, it's just a big corporate, it's just a big, massive corporate, probably the biggest corporate uh, organisations in the world. And when it works for them, it works for everyone. When it doesn't work for them, you're a piece of shit. And it's a shame, but it's true. So you mentioned about um, yeah, the, the transition, the um, PTSD diagnosis, almost being homeless because of uh, them trying to switch the the criminal record and the the medical discharge walk me through not just that time but literally the last 
you know, 15 years or 13 years where the darkest place that you were mentally and then what you did to allow yourself to, you know, to start healing? You know, what were the, some of the tools that worked for you specifically? Darkest moments was after Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan was a different war altogether. You know, we, we were fighting Taliban. We were, they were, we were killing a lot of Taliban. I was part of a mortar platoon and I was a machine gunner in Afghanistan. We was getting into a lot of contacts in Afghanistan. There was no real remorse in Afghanistan. There, there, there was very limited hearts and minds in Afghanistan. It was us against you. There was an element of hearts and minds. We had to we had to build that up with the farmers because we needed their land. But again, we, Afghanistan, it was quite easy to know we were going to get contacted anyway because the ICOM charter but not just the ICOM chatter, the locals would, would fuck off from the village. So once, once you know they're leaving the village, you know, right, we're having a fight today. We're going to have a good fight today. But darkest moments, you know, when I got back from Afghanistan, I had the charges coming up. I was getting medically discharged. But I, I just... I, I went very anti-army after Afghanistan because... Because when I come out with PTSD, they didn't. They I got I got sort of segregated amongst other people. So people who were my friends couldn't be my friend. It's like they were told not to talk to me. That's how I felt. And that's like, I thought you was my friend. I thought we were brothers, which we are now. But at the time, it was yeah, it was horrible. And, the day that I thought I was getting a medical discharge, I, I, even the doctor told me you're getting a medical discharge today. Okay, and 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 end to a sort of a, you know, not the end of sort of the end of an era sort of thing, but move on because a medical discharge would have meant a little bit of rehabilitation, uh, resettlement, bit of help with a social worker, etc. You know, I literally got to so I went for the medical, pushed through the medical quickly. Went to the command officer, uh, to, to the office, got marched in. Thought it was a bit weird. Got marched in, got kicked out of the army there and then for for for, for having a prison sentence. And like I say, the dark, that's when the real dark, that's during these, this sort of, this sort of time as well. I tried to take my own life a couple of times and luckily didn't succeed. But, um, but I was very close. You know, I took a lot of tablets at one point. Which completely fucked me up. I took a lot of tablets, been in a really dark place. Then, then talking to my charity found me. Talking to my charity guy, Rob Paxman, XSCS lad, who he then put me on with GMTV, and we went through a, we went through their healing process, their therapy, which helped me. I don't know why. I I I can't even explain what kind of therapy it was, but it wasn't EMDR because that didn't fucking work really when I was when I was in the military. Um, but their therapy helped me. It just helped with a click in my brain, and it's then I realised after that I'm better than this. I don't need to kill myself. Obviously, I wasn't at that point. I wasn't thinking about helping others like I am now. At that point, it was more on. Um, I, I want to go back and prove. I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't weak, and I wanted to go back and do the job that I knew I was good at, which is what I did. But then dark times, 
yeah, those dark times lasted a good two, three years. Am I PTSD free now? No, I'm not. But I can talk about it. I'm open about it. You're never going to be over it. But there's a way of dealing with it and coping with it, coping mechanisms, which is what I'm, which is what I'm trying to get out to people. I don't want to see people. I had one bloke, I had one bloke a few years ago that I, that I worked with. And uh, he, put on, he put a suicide note on Facebook. I won't mention his name. And I, honestly, I looked at that, I looked at this suicide note on Facebook. And I thought, oh, fuck off. That's what I thought. I thought, cry for help. So I actually messaged him saying, stop being a prick. This is what I said. So stop being a prick. He had, he, he's got wife and children and dogs. So stop being a prick. I hope he never read this message. But I put, stop being a prick. Give us, give us a call. All this is a cry for help. Do you know what he done? He, he, he actually went and fed his dogs and hung himself in his in a dog in a dog in a dog kennels with his dogs and his wife found him. And I couldn't believe that I sent him that message. I thought, fuck. Some people do. I wish you did. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 hard. It's so hard. Now that's what I'm trying to express with this book. When more follows you home. It could be from a childhood, like you said, what happened before? Why would you hang yourself after being in the Marines for a month? It, it could be, it, it could be from anything. People just need to speak out and reach out. You don't have to have, you don't have to have, like you say, you don't have to have been a firefighter at Grenfell or 9-11 or have gone to Iraq, Bosnia, Africa, Afghanistan and been a mercenary. To, to get PTSD, it, it could be a mixture of things. It could be anything. It could be a car crash. It could be a fight that you witness in the street. You know, it could, it could be anything. And the thing is, people, it, it could be Jimmy in the pub down the road that never really speaks out, sits in the corner. What, what unless he's a full blown alcoholic and you know his, you know his background, he's got a little dull. But even then, why is this guy sat on his own, not not not, not speaking to anyone, or, or Sarah, the one that's always pissed down the other pub that that you can't talk to? Or why does why does she kill herself? She was always on the piss. Well, maybe she had things in her head that she didn't talk about or didn't want to talk about, and that's what I'm trying to get at. You know, people need to speak out, especially men, because men men are worse than women at speaking out. You know. Men will do it over a pint in the pub, but they won't go live like I am now to you, saying there is a way forward. You know, women are more likely to go to the doctors than what men are to seek help. That's a, that's a statistical fact. But obviously, obviously, women bottle things up as well, and but the suicide rate in men is a lot higher than it is than it is women, and. I just think people need to speak out more. And hopefully this book, my journey, my story, everything else people can connect with and can lead me in a different direction, but also bring closure and help other people around the world, not just in England. I mean, people in America will hopefully relate to this as well. That's what I hope. Well, just touching on what we talked about the beginning of your story, seeking that tribe you know that purpose 
what I've seen is super detrimental for military first responders again is if you are betrayed by the organization. Now, all of a sudden, you felt part of a tribe and now you're ostracized, whether it's the stigma of, you know, 15 years ago, like, you know, don't be a pussy talking about mental health, what's wrong with you, or whether it's organizationally, you know, you your medical discharge is refused or whatever it is. I think that's a big, big part of this conversation. I know a lot of a lot of the suicides that we've had, that's been a contributing factor in the fire service. You know, there's people yeah. wanting the help, they're kind of stigmatized or they're shunned. And then uh, that's kind of like the final straw. It's know, not really. Journey. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's not. I mean, you can't put it down to the fire service, the army, or even the MOD uh, or uh, public services. It's not. They're limited to their funds and what they can do. It's the powers that be. It's the governments. It's the it's the powers that be that give, the the that give, that give the resources to. The public services, like the fire service, the police, the ambulance, the first responders, should we say, the MOD. It's the power, it's, it's the government, it's the powers that be, the ones that tell you, that they make the decision to go to war and then tell, tell their, to, 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 like, put the orders on you to go to war. And obviously, the first responder, you, you're responding to something that's happened that, that, that someone else has caused. But at the end of the day, you know your job before you join up, but there should be more help. But that's got to come. You, you, you can only get more help if the powers that be give you the help. I mean, I think, I think the America, I think America are a bit more privileged than the, the, the. I might be wrong, but I think America might be a bit more privileged with 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 help and and certain things than what the the British are when it comes to leaving leaving the forces or leaving the leaving first response. So I might be wrong with that, but it's, just, it's, it's all. That's what I. That's what I see. It's, it's more spoke out, more spoke out about more, more support, more support for the public. I might be wrong, but that's that's how it seems. Yeah, no, it, it's weird. I see it from two different lenses. I think some areas one does well, some does another. But the big thing for the first responders here. If you're a military, you you have VA benefits. If there's any kind of medical element to your service, then you'll have that healthcare the rest of your 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 life. You leave police, fire, corrections, EMS here, that's it. doesn't matter if you got banged up, you didn't sleep for 20 years, and now you've got heart disease or cancers. It's like tough shit. <laughs> You're not a problem anymore. So whereas which is why I rave about the NHS, is it perfect? No, but I think it's not perfect at the moment because it's so poorly funded and supported. But at least our firefighters and police officers in England, at least they know they can get medical care. Here, if you're not insured, you're fucked. So that's a disconnect, I think. So so I think there's a lot of things that they do in the UK better than here, to be honest. We've got this facade of helping. But for example, the VA with the mental health stuff, I know that there's some great people in that system. But overall, most of the people have gone through are like, yeah, they just threw pills at me, you know, which is not getting to the root of an issue. So, you know, on the on the front, it's like, yeah, we take care of our veterans. But actually, when you get in there it's like well you check boxes with your veterans you're not really you know giving them the 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 tools that they need and what's interesting here is there's this real movement for psychedelics to the plant medicine and a lot of veterans are having a lot of success with ayahuasca and mdma led counseling and things that are a little bit less traditional but seemingly a lot more effective because they're able to get to the nucleus do you do emdr and they're like oh it was that 
it was that stop at the checkpoint. Let's work on that. But that you can't EMDR your way out of your entire childhood. That's not how it works. It's an acute event tool. So, you know, something like ayahuasca would probably be good fit for you where you unpack a lot of the shit that happened when you were younger. And then you get to kind of, you know, go through that with a with a counselor as well and address, you know, the the entire your entire lifespan rather than, oh, you were in Fallujah, you were in Ramadi or, you know, wherever. Yeah, suicide. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is why, this is why essentially I want to do what you're doing now. The main goal is to help people. And I, there's, no, there's nothing worse, in my opinion, there's nothing worse than having an issue, whether it be like you say, from Iraq here, there, and um going and seeing someone with a white coat on and then sitting down with a degree and saying, oh yeah, we know what the problem is. We, we, we know we, we, we can, we can diagnose. Fuck off, mate. Unless you've been, unless, unless you've been there and you've done it. I can sit and talk to people. I, I, I could, I could talk someone out of suicide if I had the time. I know I could. I could, I could sit there and talk to someone, listen, empathize and sympathize because I might not have been through their exact about the exact thing that's upset them or, or traumatized them, but you still portray the same kind of behavior. So you, you can still you can still connect on a different level with them. And they're more likely to listen to you than they are someone wearing a white coat that just says they're smoking depressant pills and you know come and see me next month. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's that's a, a plaster, a band-aid, as they say in, in America. You know, you you're just putting uh, it over a bullet wound. You're not getting to the yeah. fact that you've got lead inside you, you know. I agree. Yeah, at least a lot of things have got to change, isn't it? It's as simple as that. Hundred percent. Well, I want to get to obviously this book and then we'll just give a teaser of the next one. Just before we do though, because it's it's something that's come up in conversation once in a while, Somalia. So I saw a great documentary. I forget what it was called now. Is it Seaspiracy? I think it was. But, you know, two-dimensionally, we're like, oh, these people are the enemy. Like right now with Gaza, people are swearing up and down just the same way they did in, in COVID and everything else. Like, no, this is my truth. They're the bad guys. No, they're the bad yeah. guys. And the same with Somalia. When you look at the history of um, the piracy, from what I understand, the fishing, the fishing. The f- I know. I knew you was going to say that. I knew you was going to say that. Yeah, so tell yeah. me, but but you've been out there. So tell me your perspective. You know, because I mean, this I've just watched a documentary sitting in America. So tell me your perspective of what, if you were able to at all, was the the nucleus of the piracy out of that particular country, and then let's just talk about your experience contracting out there. Well, in a nutshell, <laughs> I was again. I was just. I was, I was contracted to go on ships. Of many, many, many. I've more. I've done super yachts. I've been very privileged. I've done some lovely super yachts, and I've done some absolute dog shit ships, like the, the ones that should never. I, I did one that was done in the sixties, which is where I had a contact with three pirates. Actually, uh, not well. I say not not so long ago, but in two thousand eighteen. But um, but I mean, once once again, at the end of the day. That leads what the question you're asking. Now I look back, but back then I didn't care. I didn't care. I was getting paid to do a job to go on that vessel, and all I care about is getting that vessel from A to B. You know, 
the transit route. That's all I care about. That's all it's all I'm paid to care about. But looking back, their government's so corrupt. Somali government's so corrupt. And what's led them, what's led them that what now doing research, what's actually led them to doing piracy is because of poverty and they're starving and their kids are starving. If if my son was starving now, I'd go rob Tesco for, for a pint of milk and a loaf of bread because I'm not gonna let my son starve. So it, I, I see, I, I do see what you're saying, and but again, you know, it, it's one of them. Like when you're doing your anti-piracy courses and and your CP courses, they don't tell you. Well, basically, Mogadishu—they're starving, and the government aren't giving them the money, so they're setting up piracy outfits to go and take ships in order. To, but it, but then but then the Somalian piracy, a lot of the money was being funded to Al Qaeda anyway. So even 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 the money that they were getting for the ships, it's not like it was going on the women, the children, and the and the and the, and, and the living. It was all part of a big, a, a big massive conspiracy, a, a terrorist, a terrorist organization. So it did. It does need to be. It did need to be stopped. But then you know maybe the money that's channeled through all the shipping industries should be funneled into countries that need it as well, rather than just let like when I was in Yemen in two thousand, like in Yemen that. I was in I was in Yemen, and that's probably the worst place I've been in my life. I I decided to go back again and again, but you know, seeing small children dying of smallpox and cholera on the side of the road—that's me as a pandemic, not COVID. Uh, you know, I, I I didn't see dead stacks and stacks of dead people in England. I didn't see, you know. Or in Mosul, I was in Mosul during during the epidemic and the pandemic, whatever it is. But when I was in Yemen, I was I was seeing dead dead children, dying children, and mums and mums obviously in their jihabs praying on the side of the road for these for these for these small children that have got smallpox and respiratory diseases. I'm guessing cholera, and obviously I couldn't do anything. I was actually dressed up as an Arab at some point because it was run by Al Qaeda down in uh and Makala and and and. Um, and uh, Forget the other Salif, uh, Salif and Aiden. So I can't, I can't, you know, what I could do is feed the dogs. I love dogs. What can I say? I, I was, I was feeding the dogs, but, but like, you know, you've got, you've got Yemen that's, that's, that's basically probably one of the worst countries in the world, but next to it, you've got Oman and you've got Saudi Arabia, two of the richest countries in the world. And all they're doing is throwing their, is throwing the people that they don't want and their shit into into a country that can't sustain itself. So then you get two political organisations fighting, and it's just like, and you've got all these shipping companies going through worth billions and billions of pounds every day. Same as Somalia, I've got nothing against Somalians or Kenyans or, or anything else. But you know, you don't see you don't see uh, South Africans hijacking ships. But then if you see if you if you go like towards Philippines, there's Philippine piracy, loads of Philippine piracy. And why is that? You know, but a lot of it is, it, you could understand it more if it was the money that they're getting was, was funded, but like, oh, that, it, all, all it seems to be, I went, I did, I did West Africa as well, like Nigeria transits as well. We weren't supposed to be there. So we went there as advisors. But again, it's just bullshit. It's, it's just so corrupt because it 
you, you, you're there, you're doing a job, but really all you're doing is lining the pockets of the governments that are allowing the shipping to go through, and they're not, and they're not just, they're not giving the money out to, 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 to who needs it or looking after people who needs it. I, I think that answers. You know, I hope that answers the question anyway. Yeah, no, it gives a very different, you know, unique perspective because obviously we're all aware of the Captain Phillips story and some of these other yeah. ones, you know, where the Somali pirates were involved. But it's so sad, and I've talked about this a lot. If you look at history, no matter where you're sitting right now, whatever your country's history is, it's nearly always a few profiting off the masses. And you can see yeah. it in England. You can see it in America. It's not just poorer countries. You know, there's there's drug companies here. We have an opioid crisis that's killing, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans and people are making a fuckload of money from that. You know, we have people selling burgers and, you know, drinks, sodas. Um, and, you know, we have an obesity epidemic that is killing millions of Americans, you know, so it doesn't have to be, you know, like a war or piracy or, you know, um, some sort of terrorist organization. It can be a lot more insidious through... Yeah smoking cancer through obesity and heart attacks but it's always the same fucking thing and history is trying to teach us like you know when these people start rising up and i just had sebastian Junger on the the podcast he was saying this he's like if you look at ancient tribal culture when someone in the tribe starts being toxic and self-serving they'll probably just throw them off a fucking cliff somewhere and go back to being a functioning tribe but for some reason in modern society especially we allow these few to to just totally, you know, um, dominate the masses. And Haiti, I just had a firefighter who was in Haiti when they had the earthquake. 300,000 people died in that earthquake. And that is a, is a beautiful, beautiful island here in the Caribbean. And it would be the most thriving tourist destination if they could just steer the ship, if they could get the people back on their feet. But it's been nothing but corruption. And so you've got a lawless country that are all hacking themselves to death with machetes at the moment. So same as same as we went to Moroni. Absolutely gorgeous country, Moroni. Just off just off the coast of Africa, uh, Kenya. Uh, obviously it's a volcanic island, but I've been there many a times through transiting. But fuck me, the, the poverty out there and, and and it's the most gorgeous country apart from the, the live volcano, which might put a few people off, but you know, you, there's so many, like, like, yeah, such a beautiful country, but just run by, just, it's not run, it's lawless. It, it, that's, yeah, I get what you're saying completely. You know, I've, I've been to the Maldives twice as well, and on super yachts, and I've, I've, I've flew in and out of Maldives. The main, Mali, I think it is, Mali, uh, in Maldives, the main, the main country, is an absolute shithole. It's covered in garbage. It's covered in crap. It's 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 derelict. It's concrete jungle. Like it's 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 dirty. It's horrible. But then you get on the little boat or, or or a little hovercraft. Go 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 thirty nautical miles in the, in the sea, and you've got luxury. And it's like the main capital of 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 the Maldives. People are dying on the streets as well. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And you've got all this money getting channeled through the island. It's like same thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a... Yeah. No, it's it's tragic. It's funny, my brother actually works on on 
super yachts so i'm not going to mention names but i'm I'm curious if you guys ever work together because he does all the kind of audio visual engineering and designing for him but oh, he, right. he was riding on them for quite a long time so okay well, interesting my yeah. granddad's might have known each other and i might know your brother there we That's go the <laughs> <laughs> all right so your book is when war follows you home so yeah. first you just talk about why you wrote the book and where people can find it. And then we'll give a little teaser for the next one that's coming. Okay. So when war follows you home, I basically started back to Yemen 2016. Just had my little boy. I was on a four month deployment and, uh, had a lot of shit on my brain. And people used to say to me, Ben, you should write a fucking book. You should have a, you should have a film out. You had a mental life on and off, on the streets, off the streets, at war, not at war. So I just started thinking, you know what? I had a bit of time on my hands and I just I had a lot of shit on my brain. So I used it as a way of therapy. Just started writing a diary from the first time I could remember at five. So from five years old, started writing a diary. That's five years old. From two, in 2016, writing from when I was five, from what I can remember, writing a diary. And it took me seven years to do it. And I did 135,125 words, which is fucking mental. And, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I, I looked at it and thought, wow, this is like 900 pages on Word. And um, I, I went to a book, I invested in a book publisher because my spelling's atrocious, dyslexic. And and if I'm going to do something, I want to do it properly. I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want someone to, to read a book and go, oh, there's this grammar and uh, you spelt because wrong. Right. If I'm going to do something, I'd rather invest in it and get it done properly, and 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 change people's change change lives and, and do it do it for myself, and my family as well, essentially. So, so yeah, um, my my book my book my book uh, so often my book publisher Cassandra Welford Welford Publishing uh, went through the manuscript of, of the whole the whole manuscript unedited manuscript, which a film producer should see unedited version because they someone will want this as a film believe me and um or series and um it was it would have been too big for one book i mean this book when we'll follow home it's 210 pages so it's not big it's not small it's a, it's a good read it's it's you know if you're a good reader you could do it in a couple of days or whatever but um but yeah so that my, my, my publisher also said to me, what do you want out of this? Like I said, I've had a bit of a mad life. I haven't been an angel. I could have had loads. I could have, it could have been about loads of things and got the wrong message across. But I decided through my childhood experiences, my experiences at war, my experiences on the street, let's make it about something that everyone can relate to, i.e. mental health and post, well, post-traumatic stress disorder and mental health. So that's that's the route that I've gone down, and, and here we are. Brilliant. Where can people find the book? So the book the book can be purchased on Amazon. Uh, when War Follows Your Home, just there. You see it. The back there's the back of it as well. It's half the story. I won't say like how or why, but like I say, it's to be continued anyway. Uh, it could, uh, when Morphal is home could be found on Amazon all you have to do is type in when Morphal is home I think you've got the link anyway haven't you so you put the link up anyway yeah I'll put but, the link uh, on I know and I haven't looked recently but if it's not on the American one I'll put the link to co.uk and that that will give you the option to get it shipped over to the States as well it so. is available in America 
Okay, there we I'm, go then. I'm, I'm, well, I'm, 95, I'm 99.9% sure it's available in America. It, it, so it's on Amazon. It's also on Ingram Sparks, which, so Ingram Sparks, again, it go on Ingram Sparks, when Morphology Home, it, it, it gives out loads of distributions to, to other places. And I'm, I went on Ingram Sparks and two had been sold in America. So I know, I know that, some someone in America has bought, but I'm pretty sure I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure it could be shipped to America from Amazon anyway. Yeah, perfect. All right, and then what about the next book? Give people a teaser so after they've done, if you know, finished reading this one, they know what's coming next. Well, they don't know what's coming in the first one yet, do they? It could be about <laughs> all. The, it could be could be about any of what we spoke about, but but the se- the second one is 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 a follow on from the first. It's not off subject. It's a follow on. But it goes on about real dark times and suicide awareness and then a full circle through PTSD. And there's a lot in there. I don't want to say, I don't, I can't really say too much because it will give away the first one. But And it's not a sales pitch either, but people need to read and understand the first one to absorb it. So then understand the second one. If I, if I said, if I, if I release the second one before the first, be like, what the fuck are you on about? Be like, it'd be like releasing series three of Cobra Kai before series one. You <laughs> That's know, an so, interesting you know example I mean? you just gave. <laughs> so you need, you need you need to watch Karate Kid first before you watch Cobra Kai. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but yeah, you know, I just hope it gets the message out there, and I, I hope I hope people I hope it leads me in a different direction in life as well, and I want to do what you're doing now, or, or something something similar, you know. Absolutely. Well, I mean, every all these people that come on the show, you know, the the books, the documentaries, the podcasts, the songs. I mean, you name it. There's, I was telling uh, a friend of mine who's an artist yesterday. I feel like there's a a renaissance. You know, that was um, Da Vinci's time. You know, where music and art and everything suddenly changed and took off. And I think there's a a kind of renaissance again of, of mental health and emotion and you know recalibrating for example what a man is this not getting rid of this bullshit oh we're just you know fucking robots with no emotions yeah. and, and actually tapping into what we're supposed to be doing and i think that you know there are some great organizations like the bbc i think is 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 pretty spot on with most things but over here you know a lot of the the shit news stations and and newspapers they're losing a lot of their power because people just want the raw truth. So it is the books and the documentaries that are doing really well. People don't want the cheesy soap operas anymore. They want the raw documentaries to learn how Alex, Alex Honnold climbed, you know, El Capitan with no rope or what happened at Restrepo or, you know, you name it. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's great that you already are doing part of this and, you know, whether you have your own podcast or whether, you know, the, the book gets made into a film I'm really excited to see what the next five, ten years holds because I'm. I would like to optimistically hope that we, the people, kind of retake that power from the shitbags of the world, you know, and and start, you know, moving the needle forward to to back to maybe you know forging some peace in the world for a while. It may not be perfect, but getting away from this cycle of trauma, the cycle of violence and the cycle of war that we seem to be stuck in. Just, just, just the bullshit neg- negativity in the world. Cause that's all it is at the minute. It's just bullshit. Everything. Like you, you turn the news on. There's, no, there's, there's nothing nice. Is there? It's not, it's not, it's not, there's no good news. Is there? It's, 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 it's all just either Ukraine, Palestine, fucking 
you, you know what I mean, COVID or or there's a storm coming, you know, or it's going to be too hot. It's just like, it's going to be too cold. It's, it's, it's just depressing. And you, people, and unfortunately, unfortunately, though, the, the human race at the minute wants to feel protected and they feel protected by the society. They're telling them things on TV. They're getting too focused into TV rather than listening to real people. That's the problem. They they want to feel protected by their protector and really their protector doesn't give a fuck about them. They couldn't. They, they couldn't care less, and that's that's the truth of that's that's the truth. Hundred you know, percent. That's a that's a mic drop moment right there. Yeah, uh, Ben. Well, I just want to say thank you. It's been a, an amazing conversation. You know, I try to to not go down all the storytelling. Obviously, that will be in the book. But uh, you know, we've explored some really cool topics. So thank you so it's much. A, it's been a different podcast, James, and and it's it's been yeah. Stay in touch, please, and 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 you know what I mean. It's, yeah, it's been good.